This is the 11KBW Employment Podcast, where every month, members of our employment team get together to chat about a recent case. I'm Daniel Eisenberg, and today I'm joined by Aileen McColgan Casey. She's going to tell me about the two cases of Higgs and Rolex, two cases in the EAT on apparent bias. Well, despite this podcast studiously avoiding trying to discuss the knotty issues related to gender critical beliefs, I think this is the second podcast in a matter of months where we're going to be looking at those. Indeed. And if I'd got my way, there would have been two gender critical belief cases on this one. Well, I hope you're not going to express any views that are going to render you to have to recuse yourself in any future adjudication. Certainly not. Okay, starting our first case of Higgs then, could you please give our listeners a sense of the background facts? Well, this was an interesting case. It was a case in which somebody involved with a school had been dismissed after she expressed what might be regarded as quite stringent gender critical views on social media. So she had shared a petition opposing the introduction of relationship education in primary schools. She shared an article criticising what was portrayed as the promotion of gender fluidity. And she had used the expression brainwashing our children in relation to relationship education. This application before the EAT, however, wasn't focused on the merits of the claimant's case, but it was on another aspect of her EAT appeal. This application concerned one of the EAT lay members. He was Assistant General Secretary of a teaching union, which had been quite strongly supportive of views of which she disapproved, essentially. So she was concerned that she would not get a fair hearing in front of an appeal tribunal, which included this particular individual. You mentioned this is her second time in front of the EAT on, on a similar application. It was indeed. Her first issue that she had before the EAT was concerned the identity of another lay member. And in fact, both these individuals had been scheduled to hear the EAT case together. On the first application, the claimant raised concerns about the identity of the other lay member and Mix Lord, who was someone who was quite active as a non-binary, gender-fluid person. And she'd raised concerns about that person not being suitable to hear her case. She succeeded in that application, but then when the case came on to be heard again, she raised concerns about the identity of this lay member who'd been listed again. So why was the first recusal application successful? Well, because the individual concerned had tweeted, had engaged in social media and activism around trans rights, and the Mrs Justice Edie accepted that given that, it wasn't simply a question of identity, but given that a fair-minded observer might have concerns about whether the person could apply a neutral mind to the appeal. So in the first case, the relevant lay member themselves had been involved directly with social media activity. What was the involvement of the relevant lay member in this, the second application? Yes, this wasn't so much about tweeting, but the second lay member was Assistant General Secretary of Teaching Union, and the teaching union had adopted a pretty robust approach to the issue of trans rights, I can put it like that. They were very much in favour of LGBT equality and including uh, trans-related matters in education across the board. So 
it wasn't that the individual was necessarily themselves involved or had themselves tweeted, but they were a figurehead in an organisation which had taken a fairly strong campaigning line. And so what was the approach that the EAT took to the application? So the EAT asked whether there was a perception of bias. And the question there is whether a fair-minded and informed observer, having considered the facts, would conclude that there was a real possibility that the tribunal was biased. And I think by bias there, we have to understand a possibility of the judgment being tainted. And you mentioned there the fair-minded and informed observer. What were the kind of key facts here that the fair-minded and informed observer would have? Well, the the tribunal, the wing member, had been very significant senior post in an organisation which had taken not merely an educational or a, a neutral role in relation to, to something, but had taken quite a campaigning role in what is an issue which divides people. I suspect if the union had taken a leading role in campaigning against racism, it wouldn't have allowed an objection to be taken to the wing member sitting in a race discrimination case. But with, and I think this is what's interesting about it being a a gender critical or trans rights case, is that opinion is divided and even liberal opinion is divided. So this was a case in which the activities of the union couldn't be regarded as sort of neutral, awareness raising, merely that, but were actually the union was taking quite a, a particular position on a on a matter which about which people are divided. So do you think if it is something where if this were a settled issue as a matter of public debate, we wouldn't be having this application. I think that's right. But if it were a settled issue, then it's unlikely that the union would have been engaged in the kind of campaigning that it was engaged in, because it would have been perhaps campaigning about, you know, schools should be following the guidance issued by the (laughs) Department for Education or whatever. And I think it would be very difficult to raise any concerns about that. Whereas this was more, I mean, political with small p, but nevertheless political. And the, the Employment Appeal Tribunal was satisfied that a fair-minded observer could have recognised, essentially, that the wing member was on the other side of, of an argument. One thing I want to discuss about this particular case is actually the chronology of the application. It's quite a practical point about it, but it was quite interesting. Can you just explain to the listeners how this application came to be made and when and how it kind of fits into the timeline of the two separate applications? Well, the first application, I understand, had been made in a timely fashion, and this was prior to to the original listed hearing. And that application had concerned Mix Lord. But at the time of that application, Mr. Morris, who is the wing member who the second application concerned, Mr. Morris was also listed as being involved in the appeal, but no objection was taken to him at that point. So the first application is in the claimant's favour. So Mix Lord gets replaced. And then at the 59th minute of the 11th hour, you could say, objection was taken to Mr. Morris being on the panel. So this objection was made the night before the hearing. And in fact, it didn't reach Mrs. Justice Edie until I think 9.16 on the morning of the hearing. Was that is <laughs> not the best way to make friends with the judge, is it? No, it isn't. Having said that, the judge did say in the judgment that had there been more time to explore, it may have been that the panel member could have alleviated the concerns or some of the concerns, but that 
luxury wasn't available. Oh, so <laughs> so ta- tactically, it may, <laughs> may have come with some benefits. It, it may well do, but I, I wouldn't recommend it as a matter of course. I think in this case, because Mrs. Justice Eady took the view that she was able to determine the matter herself, notwithstanding the fact that it had been listed for a three-person tribunal, she took the view that she was able to deal with the matter herself. And I think that perhaps made her more comfortable about dealing with the recusal application. You've mentioned a few times the test here referring to the perception of bias. Can, I think it's a bit of a refresher for our listeners could explain how that fits into a wider framework of apparent bias versus real bias. There are very, very few cases in which actual bias is alleged. One category of actual bias is where the judge has a pecuniary interest in the outcome of the case. So the judge is a shareholder in a company which is being litigated against. So that's a case of of actual bias. Those cases are vanishingly rare. The test for apparent bias is, as I've set out before, the question whether a fair-minded observer would perceive a real risk of the outcome being tainted, as it were. I guess it is possible that a claimant could allege or a respondent could allege that something about the identity or the behaviour of the judge in fact amounts to bias, a real bias rather than the creation of a perception of bias. But it's hard to see why there would be a point in that because that would obviously be a very high threshold, not least because any court that found real bias in such a case would be damning the judge involved. And presumably not not so willing to kind of step on toes in that kind of way. Yeah. So I think it's hard to see where, other than in a case where you're saying there's an actual material interest in the outcome, it's difficult to see what the benefit would be of alleging real bias. But the, the perception here was related to Mr. Morris being in a very senior position in the National Ed- Education Union, even though he hadn't necessarily sent the tweets or, be, or, or been involved in the direct campaigning materials, written them him, himself. Lay members in the EAT often come from employee representative background, from, from a trade union, for example. Is there scope here where there are many cases involving contested or politically contested employee rights to start recusing members who may have been involved in trade unions campaigning on these kinds of issues? No, I think it was important in this case that Mr Morris didn't merely have a senior role in an organisation, but he had a a very senior policy-making role. He was Assistant General Secretary. That's different from being the HR director of a company which is involved, or company or organisation which is involved in in politicking. But even if it wasn't just an HR director, but someone who'd been involved in policy for a trade union, for example, is this going to open the door to further recusal applications where they're sitting as potential lay members in an employment appeal tribunal? There are two things to notice here. There is, There has been a previous case where someone senior in a trade union was required to recuse themselves, but that was because they were a senior person in one trade union which was involved with another trade union in activities which were themselves subject to challenge. So it was, a, it was obviously the case that there was too Some much kind of embroilment. Yeah. yeah, conflict, exactly. But this may push that a little, but I think what's important remember is that you know this is the very issue at stake here which was the balance between the claimant's rights to freedom of expression and her employer's rights the very issue was closely connected with an issue in which Mr Morris's union had been active so i think that's quite narrow 
And in addition, I think this kind of a case is different from a case where race discrimination is alleged. Because in most cases where race discrimination is alleged, the question is going to be, was the thing said or not? Or if it was said, was it said intentionally or what were the circumstances? In this case, the very matter in which there's public debate is the acceptable parameters of speech in this particular issue. And that, I think, makes it a particularly sensitive type of a case. And I I think there are not that many areas which are equally sensitive, possibly the borderline between um, sexual orientation rights and, and religious rights. I can see there being difficulty there. I can see why, this, why that, for that reason, it's not going to kind of open floodgates in, in the way that we're going to see recusal applications made against you know, any campaigning organisation member who sits on the on the EAT. But I was wondering, do you think, therefore, this is just really an orthodox application of general principles on apparent bias? Or is the EAT going, going a bit further here, for example, how it looks at the question of unconscious bias? Yeah, I think it is orthodox, actually. And I think what's changing is the nature of some of the case law, because where traditionally we've protected characteristics which are sort of baked in, as it were, often religious external identification of religious matters rather than doctrine, race, sex. Uh, Now, with the protection of religion and, and belief as categories, I think there's much more room for difficulties to arise the core of those difficulties being by what that person has done or said in the public domain, they will take a very different approach from me to this belief that I have. And I think that is quite a new area of of litigation. I think that's what's pushing the boundaries rather than... Is it, is it just because the, the, those are kind of previously the kind of, as you call them, the baked in characteristics or just the, the potential really for clashes between two competing protected characteristics? That's a very interesting question. But actually, I think, weirdly, this isn't a case of clashes between two different protected characteristics because, in fact, it is the protected characteristic is, is belief. And what's it's different beliefs, maybe different beliefs that are clashing here. And yes, where we protect belief, you're going to have clashes between beliefs. Whereas when you protect race or sex, there's much less room for clashes, I mean, you can have competing interests and and a bigger share of the pie going to one group means a smaller share of the pie for another group, but they're not direct clashes. Whereas here, you have potential for directly opposing beliefs, both of which are entitled to accommodation. I guess for every belief, there is an equal and opposite exactly. belief yeah. in existence, not necessarily a protected one, but uh, yeah, that's right. Want to move on then to our second case on apparent bias, which is the case of Rolex, which is a slight different fact pattern uh, to to the Higgs case. So, could you give a bit of a background to the Rolex decision? Yes, this is quite different. The Rolex decision is one in which the allegation of apparent bias came not by reason of the identity or the external behaviour of an adjudicator, but rather because of the way that an employment tribunal judge had dealt with the claim. And 
and that's always going to be a gutsy application to make. Was this one an application that was made first to the judge themselves or did it go straight to the EAT? No, I think it went straight to the EAT as an element of the appeal. And the EAT didn't accept all the criticisms made of the judge and regarded some of the judge's behaviour as reasonable, particularly in circumstances where the claimant was unrepresented. So it was the respondents in this case who'd made the application. And the judge was found in some of their behaviour to have been reasonable, but then other aspects of the behaviour were seen to, to, to cross the line. So can you just give us a, a flavour really of some of those examples where, where the judge was said to cross the line? One of them you could characterise as being somewhat unpleasant about, about the respondent solicitor. So the issue was about mitigation and it, it was being put to the claimant that she had failed to mitigate her losses. And it was accepted that the employment judge had interjected, well, the claimant has mitigated her loss and you will not convince me that she acted unreasonably. In 25 years, I've never had someone argue this and I thought you were an experienced employment lawyer. If the respondent had pleaded failure to mitigate, I would have issued a deposit order. Well, it's pretty, <laughs> pretty spicy. <laughs> pretty spicy. And of course, given that the question in this kind of perceived bias case is whether there's reasonable cause to think that the judge had made their mind up <laughs> before they came to the issue, it was accepted that this this did have that, that characteristic. Sure. I mean, I guess the question on that is, I mean, the answer may be both, but do you think it was the consent of what the judge said or reading, reading between the lines, the, the tone of it? Well, no, the judge himself had accepted that there was a clear indication that I'd formed a preliminary view that the respondent's case on an alleged failure to mitigate on the part of the claimant was hopeless. So the, yeah, I think the, the, I think, the phrase preliminary view is doing a lot of he heavy lifting there, I think. Yeah, very a lot of heavy lifting. And in addition to that, I think the what I've characterised as the snarkiness didn't help. And and the um, Mrs Justice E.D. did pick up a number of po points at which the tone of what was said by the employment judge gave rise to that overarching taint, as it were. There's always a stereotype of the sometimes grumpy judge. That surely can't itself be enough for a, a recusal application or a bias appeal. Yeah, the question is whether there is a real perception that the judge didn't give the case a fair hearing and having made up their minds in advance would be a good example of that. But certainly, I myself have, have been <laughs> subject to a judge who seemed rather grumpier than this one. I guess as long as you're grumpy to both sides, it's okay. As long as you're grumpy to both sides, I guess you might think it's okay. It can certainly be helpful sometimes to counsel or to whoever's acting for an individual to get a sense of what the judge's preliminary views might be. Yes, it can, but there is a distinction between a helpful indication of a preliminary view where the judge is saying, well, these are the, you know, I've read the papers and these are the obvious problems that you have to grapple with on the one hand and a, a, and a conveying a sense that the, the judicial mind has already been made up. And certainly, and I think this is clear from the judgment, this is not an easy line to draw because it's there's a lot of nuance. And of course, the appeal tribunal won't be in a position to get all of that nuance. But there is, I think we can all see there's a difference between a judge pointing out the weaknesses of a case, even quite robustly, and giving the impression that they've made up their mind and there's nothing that can be said to well, deter them. Well, I wanted to ask about the appeal tribunal being able to kind of get the nuances of, of what happens you know, in the heat of the moment below, because you mentioned that the EAT does go through quite a forensic process of various individual allegations. Is it a matter of kind of saying, well, I've, I've got 10 allegations, I just need to score on one and the whole the whole findings are going to fall away? Or is it a more impressionistic view of the, of the judge's approach? Well, it would depend on the one. 
I mean, if the one was was sufficiently serious, you could. I can see no reason why you you could lose all the others and get home on on the one. Though, of course, losing all the others might impact on your credibility when you're complaining about the other matters. But it will just. It's very fact specific. Once the tribunal has formed the view that apparent bias has been made out, then it's that's it. These aren't particularly common applications or, or appeals on this particular basis. So for those of our listeners who may be casting their minds back to hearings that have gone this way or want to make these kind of applications, what kind of practical lessons can we kind of learn or take out from, from this case about how to make those applications or how to put an appeal on this basis? Yeah, nightmare, I think, is the, <laughs> what it would be. I, I think we can take comfort from this that it's not necessary to raise the issue in front of the lower judge. That would be pretty awkward. Yep. I mean, it would be exceptionally difficult if you can put yourself in this position. You invite a judge to recuse themselves on the basis that they appear to be biased. They refuse to recuse themselves. And then you have to go on uh, doing the rest of the case in front of them. Very, very difficult. And I think as a barrister, you would have to ask yourself whether that could actually be in your client's best interest to take the risk that you will be struggling in front of a judge who has heard a recusal application and and refused it. As lawyers, we regularly make allegations that a judge has got something fundamentally wrong, whether it's the law or whether it's how they've read the facts. And then we go back in front of that same judge and it's just par for the course because everyone knows that's how it goes. But this is something different to that, isn't it? I agree. I think it's completely different. There's no moral failure in having been wrong about the law. Most of us certainly have been at some point in our careers. I think that even though it's couched in terms of perceived bias, if if it's the kind of application that you were making because of a judge's behaviour, you know, you are calling the judge out on that behaviour. And and I think that's a very high risk way of doing it. In a practical sense, then, if you were putting together this kind of application, what are the kind of materials that you'd be, you'd be looking for in terms of evidence or documents that would be going to the EAT? Well, hopefully you will have taken a good note or somebody sitting behind you will have taken a, a, a good note of what's gone on. I think it can also be helpful, and I've done this myself, is if you feel that a judge is behaving unfairly towards your client, that you make yourself a careful note of what it is you want to say to the judge the next time that happens. And you might want to put a very polite hand up to the judge that they might not be seen to be treating your client fairly. Having said that, of course, if you do that in the course of the proceedings, it may just mean that the judge reigns in. Um. (laughs) (laughs) You lose the merits of any subsequent appeal. I guess drawing the strands together then of the two cases that we've been talking about, one obviously focused more on the kind of external conduct of the the judge or the lay member, the other on how they actually conduct themselves in the hearings. Is there something which kind of unites these kind of strands? Is it all about predetermination or are these two essentially two separate doctrines? I don't think they are separate. I think the question is always, it's a question that has its root in Article 6, the right to fair trial and natural justice in the common law. The question is, is there a concern that the adjudicator hasn't or is not likely to treat these parties impartially? And that could be because the adjudicator 
has a grand passion for something that is shared with one of the parties. And it could be because the adjudicator appears to have taken a dislike, a personal dislike, even in the course of the proceedings to one or other of the, the parties. But I, I think that's what is at the heart of it. And in a day and age where there are plenty of part-time members of the judiciary, lay members and, and many lawyers who sit part-time as judges, and also day age of very vocal use of social media. Do you think there's a potential kind of conflict or issue kind of bubbling up about potential use of social media on these kind of hot topic issues by those who may what currently or have aspirations to sit on the bench? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. And I think that the, the extent to which those who may end up sitting on the bench need to be careful about their social media output goes well beyond anything that the Bar Council or any other regulatory body would be concerned about. I think, I think those who, who may want to, to sit might be well advised to um, just be quite ruthless with themselves and their social media output because you can delete tweets. You know, you can't necessarily clean your, your social media output after it's gone up. A salutary lesson there for anyone with high aspirations. Yeah, and I, but whether that's a good thing I'm not so sure about because, of course, there's a difference between harboring strong views and being open and vocal about well, I guess the fact that you harbour strong views. Just because someone doesn't tweet a certain view doesn't mean they don't already have that view. No. So that it's an interesting question that whether it's better to know what you're getting, you know, having a, have a fairly clear grasp about what it is your adjudicator might be predisposed to think so that you can then engage with that or whether it's better to approach from a position of ignorance. Going back to points we've, we've kind of come across earlier, which is, you know, these are always put as apparent bias cases rather than actual bias cases. There is an allegation that these people are actually predisposed. It's just the perception of it. So, you know, simply the fact that someone has expressed their view online beforehand, there isn't really a suggestion that actually they haven't heard the case fairly. It's just a perception that they may have done. Yeah. That's right. But there is a whole can of worms because, of course, all of us have views about particular matters and those views tend to go unexplored. It's only if we have put those views into the public domain that we, if we end up being adjudicators, may may get tripped up by them. I guess, do you think that the law is there making an implicit assumption that it's only those who put their views in the public domain or putting those views in the public domain is an implicit suggestion about just quite how important those views are to you. I think it's more that we can't look into men's souls or women's. This is obviously a very knotty problem that can occur. Is there anything really that judges can do to kind of mitigate the risk of it taking place? Yes, well, Mrs Justice Edie dealt with this in the Higgs case. So she said the primary obligation to identify these matters must rest with the individual judicial office holder. It would not be appropriate for EAT judges who preside over panels to carry out investigations into their colleagues. And it's really for, for judges to raise them themselves to raise if there are any potential concerns. In the case of an EAT wing member, that would be with the EAT judge. Better safe than sorry. Indeed, always. That was Aileen McColgan KC talking to me, Daniel Eisenberg, about Higgs and Rolex. You can find the 11KBW Employment Podcast on all the usual podcast apps. You can also email us at employmentpodcast at 11kbw.com. <laughs>